Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be the top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is a very interesting character by the name of Jay Stringer. He's a therapist, a minister, and a researcher. He's a a licensed mental health counselor, ordained minister, and nationally requested speaker on the subject of unwanted sexual behavior, i.e. extramarital affairs, pornography, buying sex, and many others. He's based in Seattle and has spent the last decades on the front lines of demand for sexual exploitation and pornography. His clinical work guides men and women to find freedom from unwanted sexual behaviors through inviting them to identify the unique reasons that bring them to it. In addition to his therapy practice and frequent speaking engagement, Jay is also a lecturer for the city of Seattle's John School, a program designed for men who have been arrested for soliciting prostitution. So in his first book, Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing, uh, it's really a multi-year research project. And get this, it researches the stories of 3,800 men and women to address the key drivers of unwanted sexual behavior, why people remain in a place of shame, and the journey towards a new sexual story. So his research is one of the most comprehensive studies on this subject. And in collaboration with the Heart of Man film team, Jay uh, also designed a comprehensive online journey for individuals, accountability partners, and small groups who desire freedom from unwanted sexual behavior. So really fascinating work. Jay and I kind of get into some pretty specific topics around how sexual dysfunction impacts, um, how how sexual dysfunction can be brought on by trauma, childhood abuse, neglect, uh, abandonment, rejection, avoidance, <laughs> all of the things that we experience in, in childhood, bullying, feeling like an outcast, not feeling like we belong, uh, having a broken family system, divorce, all of these things, you know, getting moved around a lot, all of these things can be correlated to sexual dysfunction in our later years. And so the interesting thing about Jay's work is that it really shows how our pasts can impact our current sexual dysfunction. So regardless of where you're at on the scale, I don't, I don't want to hear I don't want you to hear this description that I just gave and think, well, I didn't have any dysfunction as a kid and so I don't need to listen to this. Uh I would love for you to to enter this with an open mind because our pasts do create our present moment. And if we aren't careful, that that will continue on. And so if you are curious about your sexual nature, if you are wanting to explore your sexuality more, if you are wanting to let go of some shame, if you're wanting to have more engaging sex with your partner, if you're wanting to understand your partner's sexual blocks better, all of these reasons you should tune into this podcast episode, and I would encourage you to actually share this episode with your partner because some of the research that Jay shares is quite profound, but also it, it is a really direct link to show how the trauma of the past or how uh, things from our childhood can really impact things that we fantasize about, how people use pornography. Uh, and it's a very interesting subject that I will inevitably be diving into more on this show. So uh, so definitely check this out. For all the guys that are out there listening, head on over to Facebook, join the Man Talks community. And don't forget to check out one of the upcoming men's weekends. We have 
Uh, just a few spots left on the one in Vancouver and just a couple left in the ones in New York. So without further delay, please welcome Jay Stringer. Connor, it's such an honor to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this. A lot of the guys in the community uh, have been looking forward to this interview. I think I've referenced it a few times on the show as, you know, last year we did this big uh, no porn challenge and we had a couple hundred guys in the man talks community on facebook actually join us and one of the guys recently tyson who's one of the admins you know put your book forward and i checked it out and a bunch of the guys checked it out and they really really enjoyed it and the conversations that it brought forward so i'm looking forward to digging in but before before we do that before we dive into the research and you know talk about sex and and porn and uh, sexual dysfunction and you know all those glorious things uh, i have to ask the question of Tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Uh, so as you know, my name is Jay, um, but my middle name is actually Elmer. So I have both my grandfather's names. Uh, Jay was my dad's father's name and Elmer was my mom's dad. Uh, and so Jay died a couple years before I was born. And then uh, when I was in grad school, my grandfather Elmer died. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to a funeral where, you know, it's, it's just it, it's one of those scenes where you feel like your heart should begin to feel more than it's mm -hmm. feeling. Uh, and I just kind of realized the sadness that I'm feeling is that I never really knew who my grandfathers were. Um, and so a couple of years later, my uh, dad's mom decided to move out to the Seattle area to be closer to my parents. And so after, you know, my grandfather's funeral, I was thinking if if I'm going to know anything significant about the life of a living grandparent, now is going to be the time to do it. So in my mind and as a grad student, I thought of a what I thought was a phenomenal grandson gift. Um, I went out to an antique store and I bought three skeleton keys from the era of my grandmother's birth year. And on her 90th birthday, I took her out and I said, Grandma, these three keys symbolize three lunches that I want to take you out to to learn more about your life story and who you are. You know, five seconds passed, 10 seconds passed. My grandmother didn't say a word. Uh, and she looked completely horrified that I had even proposed this question. Uh, and then probably about a minute later, she looked at me looked down back at the keys and then pushed the gift box back across the table towards me and said, Jay, there are some doors you just don't open. There are some stories you just don't tell. About two minutes later, she asked me to take her back to her assisted living home. And that was probably our last significant conversation before she died. Uh, and so I remember thinking just in that moment at that cafe uh, this is my family history. This is what has been given and passed down to me is that whatever difficulties you face, uh, you just don't open those doors and you don't talk about them. Um, and so, as you can imagine, just being a grad student studying psychology, uh, that was incredibly intriguing to me as to what her backstory was. How was it that she had gotten to 90 years of life and most people had never asked her those questions. And so, you know, as a, as a training therapist, uh, that really defined my life is there are stories that each of us do not want to tell. Um, and those stories have impacts for generations. And so I thought if I could really just invite people to tell their stories, to understand their stories, uh, we could really change some things for the next few generations to come. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's it's 
I think what you're saying is so powerful, right? There is a there seems to be a legacy of secrecy that has been handed down from the past generations. And I, I've seen this in a, you know, I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in a lot of, you know, the people that come and work with me in their families. And there does seem to be this longstanding passing down of not talking about certain things. And just out of curiosity, where, if it, where's like the origin story for that? Like, why do so many families and people adopt this mentality of not talking about large pieces of their lives that are incredibly important? Uh, Well, I think from my grandmother, what we learned was, uh, you know, a couple years later, my parents were going through her medical records. And my dad always grew up believing that he was the firstborn child to Dorothy. Uh, But on his birth certificate, there was a question that was asked, uh, basically, Dorothy, have you had any previous births? And that box was actually checked yes. Uh, So as best as we can put together, uh, my grandmother was likely raped by a family member sometime around the age of 14, 15 years old, and then shipped off from Illinois down to Louisiana. Uh, And so I think that that has a lot to do with just inherited family trauma and abuse. Um, And when those stories happen to us, one of the things that we naturally do is we want to conceal those stories. We feel a lot of shame about what they might reveal about us. And maybe we just don't ever have the ability or the invitation to tell the truth. And so I think uh, shame is just so operative in every family system. Uh, And most families prefer to present a rosy and fairly boring picture uh, about who their parents, who their families really were. So I I think wherever there is a sense of shame, there's going to be an incredible sense of hiding. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So out of curiosity, what led you down this path towards, you know, really focusing in on and and working in on sexual dysfunction and and porn, because a lot of your work really has revolved around uh, those two things. So after you were done with your psychology degree, what what steered you in this direction specifically? So uh, the city of Seattle back in, I guess this was probably 2009, started something called the John School. And so this was a program for men who had been arrested for soliciting uh, women in prostitution, and they could go through this one-day class as a diversion to sentencing. And so I kind of got known in the city of Seattle as a guy who works with sex buyers uh, and basically just any form of unwanted sexual behavior, be that the use of porn, infidelity, basically any sexual dysfunction that at the end of the day, people wish they could get rid of in their life. And being in in a therapy office, I think part of what I was beginning to see is that people were coming to see me with two types of backgrounds. Uh, one would be they they came from an understanding that this was just an addiction, so more of a pathology model. Uh, a lot of these clients uh, were coming from faith-based backgrounds where they just saw basically most of their problems were with lust and they just needed some way to manage their lust through accountability, through software, uh, and just basically annihilating their sexual life. And then there was another type of person that was coming in that I would say just came from more of a sex positive approach, uh, which is really centered on how do we remove the shame and stigma associated with our sexual choices. 
and very quickly realized that both of these paradigms have uh, kind of good insights from time to time, but they were not actually inviting people uh, to address the formative stories that shaped their life. And they were not really inviting people to make meaning out of their sexual lives. And so um, as we all know really well, uh, porn use is kind of everywhere. Uh, it is one of the best metrics of cultural attention that we have. Um, so if you want to know what anybody is doing at any given point in time, you need to look no further than porn rates across the country. So one of the examples uh, of this was during the 2017 NBA finals between the Cavaliers and the Warriors. Porn use at the beginning of game five was down about 6% in the Cleveland area. And then at some point during the third quarter where it was really apparent that Cleveland was going to lose game five and therefore uh, the entire NBA finals, uh, porn use goes up about 34% in Cleveland. Um, and so it's just one of those things where it's where we go with our boredom. It's where we go to reenact our formative traumas. It's where we go when we are feeling uh, unwanted. We don't feel lovely. And we go and pursue these things that actually confirm our core beliefs about who we are. So we know the stats. We know how many people are using it. Uh, but what I realized was missing in my field and in most of the conversations I was having with friends and peers was that uh, we weren't really stepping into what's the why driving this. And so I realized that unless we radically change this conversation, we're going to continue to consign uh, men and women and marriages and partners to just a lifetime of futility and secrecy and hiding and contempt with these issues. Uh, and so that was the decision to do some original research. Uh, and so I asked about 4,000 people to tell me their story, basically their relationships with their parents, uh, formative experiences like bullying or sexual abuse, uh, and then to tell me what they were dealing with in the, in the present, from a lack of purpose to depression to anxiety. Uh, and then also to give me some of the specifics of what they search for on the internet. So that could be, you know, Part of what we know is that there's different porn sites that actually track all of our data. So uh, lesbian fantasies, uh, mother-oriented themes, younger women, all of these things, the porn industry knows what people are more likely to search for. So I put all of this into an instrument uh, to basically want to understand the question of how does our life story, past and present, go on to shape our unwanted behaviors as adults. And so after I got that research data back, basically what we saw was that uh, our unwanted sexual behaviors, our fantasies, our arousals are not random at all. They were a direct reflection of the parts of our story that remained unaddressed. And so the implication was that uh, our sexual dysfunctions, our compulsive behaviors can actually be a roadmap to healing, not a life sentence to shame, not a life sentence to uh, dysfunction. So that's that's what the, I wanted to do with this conversation is how can our um, how can the difficulties of our life really invite us to a fuller understanding of what healing could actually look like? Yeah, that's I mean, it's, it's powerful. And I think you, you touched on some really, really interesting things, especially in and around um, the, the conversation of why we are drawn to pornography. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of guys, a lot of the men that come to the men's weekends are coming to work with me one-on-one. -on -one. It's, you know, when porn comes up, 
and we start talking about when they watch it and why why they want to watch it, it's usually in and around, well, I'm stressed, I'm overworked, I have a ton of anxiety, and so I want to release. You know, I feel like I'm on top of the world, and so I want to celebrate. I feel lonely, and so I want to connect. And so when we really dig in, we start to see that the reason for them going to watch porn is is often has nothing to do with sexual attraction or desire or uh, or, you know, or being horny, it's, it's usually a, f- a form of trying, it's a coping mechanism, right? And it's a coping mechanism to distract from something else that seems to be going on. <laughs> you were, you were mentioning the, the Cavaliers game, a, a more recent example, just, just to like take with you that is the recent riots that happened in Hong Kong, the, the, uh, what, what they did in Hong Kong to get, I think it was like one third of the population out to basically protest uh, against yeah. the the legislation that was being put out was they actually all the porn sites they shut down all the porn sites in Hong Kong <laughs> entirely and and I didn't that. yeah wow. and so for that entire uh, you know tw- I think it was like forty eight hours something like that or, or twenty four hours they shut down all the porn sites entirely and so it basically incentivized people to to get off their get off their ass and go out and. And, you know, be a part of this uh, governmental uh, standing up against the government and, and what, what was happening there. And so we can see the very real impacts of, of how many people are watching porn. And I think, you know, your book reveals some interesting studies, but let's just go through this from the beginning. Uh, because I think one of the interesting things and one of the most important and valuable things that, that I found from your book is that you really look at how our past starts to impact the type of porn that we have and how, um, and I've been saying this for, for a while, but your book does such a beautiful job of encapsulating it, but really eroticizing our, our childhood wounds. And so I would love for you to just speak to that. Why is it that a lot of porn seems to be built on eroticizing our childhood wounds? And, and can you unpack that in a way that maybe the listener can, can better understand how that can show up for them? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways that I understand the why pornography is so prevalent is to think of like, uh, think of pornography as a river. So if you were to think about it as the Mississippi River, there's a lot of tributaries that are going to flow into that. One of the primary ones is the Missouri River, right? But there's also the Tennessee, the Arkansas. Um, And so I think a lot of times what happens is that we tend to think that pornography just exists because we're horny or because it's erotic material. And therefore, you know, our sexual arousal just comes online and that's why we're drawn to porn. Uh, but the reality is, is that I think one of the primary tributaries to the river of pornography is that it gives us a sense of power and a sense of control. Um, and so one of the things that my research looked at was, uh, you know, if you, if you tended to be drawn towards, uh, maybe someone that was smaller, a petite body type, uh, someone in college, a race that suggested to you some level of subservience. My research showed that these, these men tended to be dealing with a lack of purpose. They had a strict father and they were dealing with high levels of shame. And so I think part of the writing on the wall is that it, it's definitely erotic. It's definitely sexual material, but far more pornography gives them the ability to create a world where there is no difficulty and that they are able to reverse some of those dysfunctional family systems that they were a part of. 
And so what ends up happening, and that's part of the appeal to porn, is that I might feel a lack of purpose in my own life. I might feel like I, I can't get the sex that I want uh, with my partner. But then pornography gives me this world where I can have it exactly when I want it when, and, and no one interferes. And so I think if we are only trying to address pornography just through that lens of erotic material, but not really understanding how it serves us and how it gives us a sense of power, however short term it lasts, uh, we're really just going to set ourselves up to for a continual struggle because we haven't had the language and the ability to name that there's a huge desire for power there as well. Yeah. Yeah. And can you give a bit of an example? Because one of the things that I, I loved about your book is that it's sort of created these these correlations between the type of porn that we watch and the type of disconnection that we experienced as a kid you know like can you just maybe give some examples of that or uh or just sort of shed some light on that yeah so uh one of the things that i kind of invite most of my clients to think about is like their sexual life their sexual arousal as a type of house uh, and so uh, just to kind of imagine, you know, it's late in the evening or maybe at, at some point that they're really bored during the day. Um, and then they hear that kind of familiar knock of like wanting to go to porn, wanting to act out sexually. Uh, and part of the frameworks that most people are operating out of is that some people just kind of develop some just say no technique and they just want to annihilate it. They want to stop it for the good of their faith, the good of their marriage. Uh, other people just kind of let whatever arousal comes up within them to just kind of ransack their house. And so what I invite people into is like, what if you met that sexual desire out on the front porch and you just began to ask it questions like, why is it that you think that you're even welcomed in this house? Or how long have you known that you would be welcome to come inside this house? Or, or at what point in my life did I actually merge with this type of fantasy? Um, and so a lot of times what people will end up telling me is that whenever they hit a, you know, a roadblock relationally or in their own careers, that they kind of go back to looking at porn. And so when you go back to kind of trace something of that pattern, uh, oftentimes what I'll find is that uh, a guy might talk about how he uh, first saw porn on a descrambler device in his basement. Um, and this guy in particular said, Jay, I always wish I had just thrown that descrambler device away. Basically, some device used to descramble erotic cable channels. Uh, but then when I asked him who he thought put that device there in the first place, part of what he said is, I'd never thought about it, but totally my dad. Um, and so the, you know, the, the videos, the images that they both watched involved kind of barely legal teens. Um, and so when he began to explore some of his porn searches in the present, that was uh, almost directly what he was seeking out as an adult. And so part of what we have to kind of do is to go back to say, uh, what's the meaning within the sexual fantasy that I'm trying to pursue? So uh, even personally, I remember sitting on a therapist's office and uh, some of my uh, fantasy template had to do with kind of just more mother-oriented themes. 
uh, and was really curious and yet also disturbed as to why this was my porn search and why this was my fascination. And part of what my therapist invited me to kind of go back to was to explore my own role in my family, uh, particularly with my mom. And so my dad was actually a, a minister and would attend to a lot of crisis in our in our church. Uh, and so whenever he would go and attend to these things, uh, I could kind of watch that my mom would be pretty upset because my dad was going to go and leave the family again to attend to these work things. And so as a child, part of the way that I grew up was learning to kind of see disappointment, to be able to see anger, and then present myself as kind of a kind son, uh, even a therapist at eight years old, of just asking my mom questions about um, how she was doing, if I could help out around the house and do more dishes. Um, and so what we often don't think about is that our style of relating, the, the role that we played in our family, is actually going to get woven into our sexual life as well. And so, you know, throughout a lot of, even into grad school, I was working out of that unconscious script with women where I would uh, listen to them, I would ask questions about what they were struggling with, with their, with their lives, even with their partners in some situations. Uh, and that was part of what I needed to confront was, uh, why is it that this is the way that I go about interacting with women? Why is this the way that it's, that I'm pursuing this type of topic, this type of subject in pornography as well? And so that was really the place where I experienced a lot of my own personal healing and development was, uh, it, instead of trying to go to pornography to play out some of the the anger that I had against my mom for being used in that way, um, I needed to kind of talk to her directly about what I was experiencing. And so the other realm for me as a therapist is just to kind of recognize that my ability to interact with a human heart to interact with a story uh, is one of my greatest gifts. And so one of the things that porn did was basically, in fantasy, was basically just, it, it allowed me to kind of sabotage that. So I know, Connor, you, you will often say that we become what you believe that you deserve. Um, and I think that that's really true of our sexual life, is that we pursue what we believe that we deserve as well. And so part of, you know, what I had to deal with as, you know, as a man was that there was a lot in my life that I wasn't happy about. Um, there was a lot about who I was becoming that I wasn't pleased with. And so part of what I pursued in pornography uh, was basically about choosing to find evidence that confirmed that this is really how destructive that I feel like I am. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a, a great unpacking and example of how our past you know, whether it's our, our first interaction with pornography or whether it's, you know, our, our role in our family system, how those things impact the sexual desires that we have later on in life, the wounding that we have, uh, whether that's erotic or sexual in nature or not, and, and then the type of porn that we end up watching. And I, th I think it's, it's really interesting, you know, recently, uh, this is, this is going to be coming out in the next month or two, but I did this four-part video series, and one of the episodes was specifically around pornography. And one of the questions that I asked the three guys that was on the panel was, what's your, uh, tell, you know, tell us a story about the first time you watched porn. And it was really interesting because they, one of the guys talked about 
um, finding porn in the woods, which apparently is a big thing, <laughs> which I didn't know. <laughs> but he, he found porn in the woods and he was with his buddies. And one of the other guys was introduced to porn uh, because his father was watching it. In, and he found uh, his, his father had basically hardwired the, the TVs together. And, uh, and so when his father was watching porn in the living room, he, he could turn the channel to a certain uh, turn the dial to a certain channel and the porn that his father was watching in the living room would come on in his bedroom. And so, you know, I think it's very interesting that, you know, our relationship with sex and intimacy can be sort of hardwired to how we have discovered in the first place, the messages that we received about sex and intimacy. I'm curious on that front, how important are the messages that we receive about sex and intimacy as kids? How important is that to our sexual development? And how do you see that from a therapeutic standpoint, impacting people uh, as they evolve and get into relationships and become sexually active? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all of that is so well said and just great examples of really inviting people to consider what are those first instances uh, of involvement with not only porn, but also sexuality. And so one of the things that we found in the research was that some of the most significant porn users, so those that answered basically fours and fives on the Likert scale, uh, had sexual abuse scores that were nearly 24% higher than those who did not view pornography at all. And so especially as men, that's an area that we don't tend to talk about very often. We know that about one in six men have histories of past sexual abuse. But then when you begin to think about the introduction to pornography, if that was something that you really wanted, there's usually some type of power dynamic that's at play, even in that introduction. Uh, That is going to create debris over a person's story. Um, and so that that becomes the invitation to kind of say, um, uh, you know, especially if you have a, a bunch of sexual experiences that felt a little bit awkward or maybe a little bit strange, is to kind of really go back to study what was the end result of what you experienced. Because what we know from just kind of things like grooming is that most abusers, even if that's a peer, a neighbor down the street, or someone much older than us, Uh, they know something about our family background, uh, which is maybe a dad was gone quite a bit, a mom was maybe pretty controlling. And so that initial involvement that we have with this person who introduces us to porn uh, isn't just genital contact. It's not porn. It's, you know, they notice you. They, They invite you to go to the park to go play basketball. And so what your body initially experiences is this, uh, it's called oxytocin, which is basically a bonding hormone. Uh, But then as the relationship develops and the grooming develops, your body will begin to feel some some sense of cortisol of what's actually happening right now. And most abusers are always trying to invite the person that they're abusing to a sense of pleasure. So they introduce you to porn. They know that you have arousal. They know that you're intrigued because you've never seen something before. And so your body feels dopamine, which is pleasure, motivation, but it also feels the sense of stress uh, and cortisol and oxytocin. And then at the end of all of that, you feel some sense of shame of, I can't talk to my parents about this. I can't talk to other peers about what I just experienced. And so what ends up happening for a lot of us as men is that 
it becomes this petri dish and this kind of really toxic cocktail of we want to bond with someone, we feel stress, we feel pleasure, and then the end result is we feel shame. And what happens to us much later in life is that we are actually trying to remix that original sexual template that we experienced much later in life. And so when you think about a man that is on a business trip that wants to bond with someone in a hotel lobby, wants to feel some of that initial excitement, feel some level of innuendo and arousal, but then the, the experience of stress of what if my partner finds out, what is this gonna do to my career? And then you feel shame all over again. Part of what we need to recognize is that that's not just something that's randomly happening to us as an adult because we're a sexual being. We have to go back to where that template actually started. And so that's really the therapeutic work that I do with men is to really invite them into their story and what it would mean for them to grieve those traumas and to actually become angry at the ways that their sexual lives were used by another person. And I think when you can kind of find, when you can invite men to be really tender and kind uh, to a lot of their heartache and invite them to a sense of strength and anger with how they were misused, uh, those men tend to grow so incredibly fast and are so much less likely to outsource uh, their boredom, their frustration, their anger, their loneliness to an unwanted sexual behavior. What about the what about the guys that don't identify as having been misused but still have a dysfunctional relationship with it? Because I think one of the things that I've noticed is that there there definitely is that category where where when we start to dig into someone's past, you know, we can see that there was abuse or neglect or abandonment, and there's a very you know clear identification. Uh, whether or not that's there initially, but but being able to to uh, see that connection, but I do think that there are also a lot of guys who they they haven't quite made it there yet, you know, and then they they label themselves as you know having a pretty normal childhood and that there wasn't much dysfunction, but now in their current life there's a pretty heavy uh, usage of porn and, and it's become the thing that they that they go to when they're feeling anxious or stressed out or disconnected. And so how, uh, when you, when you start to go into their pasts, what do you start to notice? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, uh, my research, my research found was that, uh, men who lacked a clear sense of purpose were seven times more likely to use pornography. Um, and so the way that I've begun thinking about porn, especially if you don't identify with kind of overt family trauma um, or kind of abuse issues, is to really kind of begin to look at some of the difficulties in your present life and how you outsource those things to pornography. So uh, that's why a lot of what I've been saying and thinking about recently is kind of just pornography almost as a type of cultural squatter, um, that if you don't know who you are, you don't know where you want to go in life, you don't have a sense of purpose, pornography is going to become a squatter. Uh, and so I, I remember a couple of years ago, my wife and I were moving from one rental house in Seattle to another rental house. Uh, and it was, you know, just at the end of the day, completely sweaty uh, and our U-Haul is completely loaded up. And then my wife reminds me that we left all of our baby stuff down in the basement, like a baby stroller, or bassinet, those sorts of things. Uh, and I told her, I'll just come back in a couple of days and pick, uh, pick up those items. So we move into our new house. 
take the car back to our old rental house and start walking up to the front door. And I get this really, really ominous feeling come over me. And I look up and there is a guy peering between the curtains uh, upstairs in our old house. And it's just one of those split second decisions of either go and confront this guy uh, or I just let that stuff go to goodwill that I was going to retrieve and made a good (laughs) decision to leave. Uh, But what struck me was that this guy within three days knew that there was nobody home in that house uh, and he took up residence. And so I, I think that that's really true of a lot of us as men is that when we don't know who we are, And we're beginning to see a lot of the illusions break down of what we thought relationships or money or careers would offer to us. Uh, We don't know how to metabolize those things well to be able to to risk again, to hope again. And so we end up allowing a lot of squatters into our life. Um, We know that, you know, the average American watches about four and a half hours of television a day. Uh, We know that, you know, what we mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show around porn rates. So I I think it's just, we have to begin to be really honest about uh, we allow a lot of squatters into our life when we don't have a real profound sense of what the meaning of our lives is and where we want to go with it. So I think that that that's the invitation for those men that don't necessarily want to dive into the past right away, but to really begin to, question how how is porn how is any unwanted behavior actually keeping me from the desires that I actually want to see happen in my life yeah I, I think that's such a great uh, a great addition and sentiment and you know it's something that I've seen time and time again with with so many guys and even with myself I, I know in my life where I have found myself uh, you know, being lost or feeling like I'm not too sure what the next steps are in my career or a relationship in the past, that those were definitely the times where I felt like porn filled a very unique void, right? And it was pulling me away from having to think about or feel into this stuff that was going on in my life and became the the perfect distraction or, or coping mechanism for what was happening. And I see that with so many guys. And you know it's it's interesting because there are also uh, I, I almost want to try and play like the the devil's advocate for a quick second and say, you know, do you think that there are benefits to pornography? Because I one of the things that I hear from a lot of men is, well, porn taught me X, or porn showed me this, or I felt more confident after watching porn because of X, Y, and Z. And I, I have my own take on this, but I'm curious to get your, your perspective on, on uh, just on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of the difficulty with porn is that I, you know, a lot of the studies that are coming out around erectile dysfunction, around uh, just the amount of violence in pornography, I think it's something like 88% of porn films that have been analyzed had some level of violence in it. Um, and so for me, where I stand, it's, it's really hard to kind of see some of the benefits. And I think that that's also a challenge to uh, parents. I think that that's a challenge to faith systems, uh, that if we are not going to educate and bring really good sex education to our education systems, to our families, to our friends, uh, the pornography industry is happy to take over. Um, and so I think that that becomes part of the part of the challenge for us is, 
yeah, I get that people learn something about sex and sexuality from pornography, but it doesn't really help grow the whole person. Um, I, I think we know intuitively when we begin to outsource our desire, our frustrations uh, to some other object, to some other person, rather than confronting that thing that we need to be able to move through, um, there are consequences to that. And so I think that that's part of what we're seeing from erectile dysfunction, uh, the rates of divorce that are occurring and people's citing pornography as a major issue within a lot of that. So for me, it's, it's really hard to see good fruit coming from the, <laughs> the tree of porn. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's a great, yeah. It is, it is challenging, right? Because I think a lot of people that are on the, you know, sort of like porn positive bandwagon are, are people from uh, people that are generally believe that they have benefited from it in some way. And I think, you know, the, the concept that uh, like one of the biggest arguments that I hear a lot of people make is oh, I've, I've learned a lot from this, or I brought it into my relationship and we've, you know, we've gotten to explore uh, certain sexual activities because of porn. And, you know, I think with the research that you're talking about, we, you know, we can see that a lot of the porn is based from a sexually dysfunctional place. And so if it's being used as a, from an educational standpoint, then it, then surely we can conclude that it's really not teaching us what we ultimately want to learn from a place of learning how to have uh, you know, I- intimacy, real, real sexual intimacy with our partner, regardless of what that looks like, you know, regardless of what type of sex you're wanting to explore, or power dynamics you're wanting to explore with your partner, uh, that the porn definitely has a, a pretty severe impact on that. And, and then a lot of the porn that's being produced is being produced from a place of eroticizing wounds. Now, I, th- I think that the industry is starting to notice that. And there, I think there's some movement of, you know, female uh, directors that are getting in and trying to produce more uh, more intimacy based pornography, and I think something like thirty five or thirty percent of porn is now being watched by women. Um, but I'm I'm curious from your from your perspective, um, you know, because you're kind of making a case for being able to say, hey, long term, porn's not not a sustainable thing, and uh, it can have a pretty severe impact on the relationship. So just from your research and from the work that you've done with men, how have you seen porn get in the way of true sexual connection and intimacy within relationships and marriages? Yeah, a lot of what I find is that um, I, I think one of the concepts that I actively try to debunk is that pornography is about self-medicating wounds. Um, I, I I think far more that we pursue behaviors that confirm who we think that we are. Um, and so one songwriter kind of says that every gambler knows is to, is to lose is what you're really there for. Um, and so I think that, that that becomes just when you look at why people are using it, it, there's not a lot of people that go to pornography because of like, they're just completely flourishing in their life and they just want to keep that going. It's, it's when they're bored. It's when they're hopeless. It's when their partner doesn't want to have sex uh, or it's when they had a, just a boring day or a difficult day at work. They are outsourcing all of those things to pornography um, and they're not actually addressing and moving through those things. And so I think that that even sexually with a partner, 
uh, it, it's really, really difficult to keep your eyes open, to reveal yourself, to be able to ask for the things that you desire, to be able to have really good conversations about uh, the sex that you've been having, what's been enjoyable, what hasn't been enjoyable. And so most people go to either porn or a type of fantasy so that they don't actually have to be present and one with the person that they're engaging. And so I think that their pornography kind of allows us to bypass a lot of the difficult work of what it means to actually grow ourselves, uh, to be able to confront difficult things about who we are, and really grow intimacy between the person that we love. So um, all of those things, again, just I, I don't see pornography creating... Uh, much beauty, much awe, much wonder in life. It, it seems to kind of just become something that people use to confirm that they're really stuck, to confirm that they'll never be able to quite get the thing that they ultimately want. And so it just becomes this, this place of resignation, this place of, um, you know, this is all that I can kind of expect at the end of the day. This is my companion that will always be near me, that will never let me down. And, and basically, you fashion something that can never disappoint you, and therefore you're subservient to it. And I think at the end of the day, we know that we were duped. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's what I find interesting is that often when, when we dig in a little bit deeper uh, with ourselves, but also what I've noticed this with, uh, with a lot of clients is that we, we generally adopt a a one and done mentality with these situations. So for example, I've had multiple clients that are in a marriage or in a relationship and they're not having the type of sex that they want, or they're not having the sex as frequently as they want. And when we bring it to the conversation of, well, how are you addressing this with your partner? How are you talking about this? What are you guys doing about it? What does that look like? It's like, well, I talked about it and nothing happened. And, and when I dig in a little bit more, it, it's, it's like the conversation happened once and, mm-hmm. and nothing was done. And so, they, and so you know, there's sort of like a, a giving up. And I think that the interesting thing about everything that we've been talking about is where we really see the impact of shame when it comes to sex. You know, we really see the impact of, of shame and a sense of guilt and a sense of, of uh, rejection, right? Because what I've noticed a lot within myself, but a lot within the, the men that I've worked with as well, is that when we feel that rejection or we feel shame for what we desire, that's generally where porn gets, uh, gets sort of activated because it's, it's free range, right? Like we can have whatever we want there. It's kind of like this virtual reality where, where we can sexually escape all of the concerns and the shame or the embarrassment to the rejection that we're, that we're feeling. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, cause I'm, I want to be conscious of time once, you know, if there are people that are listening to this and they, they identify with a lot of what we've been talking about, what's next? How do, how do people, how do we start to uh, bridge the gap of, facing the shame that we feel sexually and being able to have some of these conversations with our partner and, and build that, uh, build that intimacy within our relationships. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I think about with regard to shame is I, I listened to this really fascinating interview a couple of years ago with, uh, this guy named Andy Casagrande, who is the videographer for the show Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. Uh, so this guy like gets in the 
into the waters with uh, great white sharks uh, without a cage. And the interviewer was asking him, just like, Andy, what in the hell do you do when there is a great white shark swimming at you? And what he says is that it's very counterintuitive, but you need to swim directly at the shark with the camera. And so what he says is the great white will actually bonk its nose against the camera, realize that it's not food. And then he kind of just says, if you're a great white shark, everything in the entire ocean swims away from you. So when this camera starts swimming at the shark, the shark has no idea what it is. The amygdala, the fear center kind of activates and then the shark swims away. And so Andy has this fascinating phrase where he says, if you don't act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. And I think that that's part of what I experience with a lot of men is that we have a lot of shame from our bullying, from our abuse, from our inability to kind of achieve our own expectations or the expectations that were placed on us by our family. And most of us try and run from that shame our entire lives. And so we try and achieve, we try and kind of just grow our own ego, we try and grow our own platforms. Uh, but at the end of the day, we feel really empty and we feel really entitled simultaneously. And so I think part of this healing journey is about being able to turn back to some of those formative traumas, some of those formative beliefs about who we really think we are, um, who we think we are sexually, who we think we are as a man, and to really begin to turn and face those things. So I think that that can be done you know, with other men where we're processing our shame stories, where we're processing those negative core beliefs about who we are. That can be done in therapy. That can be done by just kind of writing down some of the stories of where we began to merge with those beliefs. And what I've found over and over again is that when we can actually turn towards our great white memories, uh, something in us begins to change. Um, we become more tender and we also become capable of pursuing life and relationships with a lot more strength and a lot more individuation. So I think one of those initial turns has to be uh, what are the core beliefs that you hold about yourself? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great way to, to summarize it and a good call to action. And, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting because the more, you know, the more, the more work that, that, uh, I've done in this area to really sort of claim my own desires and, you know, be able to ask and receive them, be able to give, you know, openly and freely and move away from things like pornography. It, it really has been an uh, incredibly empowering journey. And so I think for anyone that's out there that, you know, is, is looking to uh, really do the work, this this is an area to, to look in because we hold not all of us, but the majority of us hold so much shame within this area. And I think the last question that I want to ask before we, before we have to head off here, Jay, is, you know, the, the book, uh, the book unwanted that you, that you wrote and is wonderful. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to how much of it, because it, it is fairly heavily steeped in, in, in faith and in theology um, specifically, I believe within Christianity, and I'm just curious as to why you chose to to go that route, and and what you want the listeners to know about that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for talking about that. It, it is a faith based resource, and part of uh, 
you know, that decision was I, I come from a story of, you know, just sex within Christian circles is, is rarely talked about. And then when it is talked about, it's not talked about well. And so a lot of the faith-based clients that were coming in to see me, I just kind of said, Jay, I have tried my accountability partner. I've tried filtering software. I've tried to kill my lust. I know that God's not happy with me. And just a lot of these kind of premises and approaches that are just toxic at the end of the day. Um, and so that has was a lot of my passion is to actually create a new conversation, especially for people who identify with uh, Christian faith, to be able to uh, have a much kinder approach to their story, um, to the way that God so often throughout the scriptures moves into human brokenness, struggle, difficulties. Like that's where we expect God's arrival. And so therefore, how would we expect it to be any different in our own lives than kind of God community showing up in a place of difficulty? And so that was a lot of my passion from the outset is to, to change that conversation within the church that has just been really toxic. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, also have a resource uh, that's called the Unwanted Sexual Behavior Self-Assessment. And this is basically just a self-assessment that people can take, about 160 questions that gets into their family history, formative experiences, their own fantasy templates, uh, and then basically generates a 40-page report for them that gives them the basically compass headings as to what in their story is contributing to the unwanted behavior that they want to uh, get away from. So if you don't want a faith-based resource, there, there are other options out there uh, to kind of identify how your story is shaping your unwanted behaviors. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, one of the things that stood out to me, you know, when I read the book was I actually appreciated that you were sort of taking a faith, faith-based stance on it and being able to talk about it from that place. Like I, I think about, you know, my childhood growing up and I went, you know, I was raised pretty strict Roman Catholic. We went to church every Sunday, um, you know, but, but sex wasn't something that was talked about at all. And, you know, I think it's, it's actually the work from an outsider's perspective. This is such a, such a needed conversation with within the church. And I, you know, I really commend you for the work that you're doing because it's, I would imagine it's not easy to bring this type of conversation into, uh, you know, into the church and, and bring this lens when usually it's frowned upon and it's not, and it's not um, really like a lot of people seem to be uh, avoidant of the conversation. Um, but, you know, I think we all have to have more of these conversations. We all need to talk about sex uh, in a more um, positive way and to really understand our shame around it. And it's a huge, huge part of life. I think I've said this quote before on the show, but Oscar Wilde said, uh, everything in life is about sex, <laughs> but except for sex, which is about power. Um, yes. And and so, you know, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And regardless of uh, what faith people have or don't have, uh, I would encourage you to go read the book or, or to listen to it on, on audio. Uh, it's really an incredible read. It's some great insight in there. And I think we, we kind of scratched the surface on some of the things that you can learn in the book. Um, but if you're interested in this conversation, definitely follow along with Jay. So Jay, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, Connor, thank you so much for having me. I, I think that, I mean, that's 
I think that's the approach that I want to kind of invite people into, whether it's faith or not. Is you know, there's a guy named Lacan who is a French psychoanalyst, and he would basically say that all of our symptoms, pornography, difficulties that we face, are holy prophets that are trying to say the thing that cannot be acknowledged by the patient. And so he just takes that approach to you know, if you have a a bad back, your bad back is actually trying to get your attention about a car accident that you maybe have gone through or maybe poor posture. Uh, But in the West, we usually take a gin and tonic, we take ibuprofen, we try and just pile through it. And so part of what Lacan and I think Christianity, when it's done well, is all of these kind of, uh, uh, all of these traditions are really inviting people to see that uh, some of the difficulties that you face can actually become some of your greatest teachers if you're willing to be curious about it. Mm, so well put. So well put. Well, thank you so much again for joining me and for everyone that is out there listening. Uh, definitely check out the links in the show notes. We'll have links uh, to the book and uh, you can check out more of Jay's work there. Don't forget to share this episode. This is a very important conversation. You might know people that are Uh, that are wanting to learn more about this area and wanting to dig into the conversation around porn. So share this with them. Uh, And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you enjoy these uh, conversations, if you enjoy these interviews, definitely leave a rating and review on whatever platform you listen on. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, you name it. We're out there, uh, YouTube included. Uh, And so until next week, thank you so much for joining me. This is Connor Beaton signing off. 